Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I am your host, Mitchell Shirk, and we are rolling right along through the month of February here. Things are drastically warming up. If you've been uh, paying attention at all to the past couple episodes, if you've been listening to any of the last few that we've had, you've noticed that we're, we're talking about things that are in the realm of planning and preparation of next season. And if you've listened to this show long enough, you know that I have a, a, a dire interest in food plots and, and a passion for private land stuff. It's what I grew up doing and being around. I used I used to remember the first time that I started planting food plots and just seeing how connecting habitat, quality, and hunting strategy came together. And it's just a passion of mine. And that's part of the reason why I got into the career that I'm in as an, as a, an agronomist. You know, I started off as a, a biology degree and hoping to get into something that would involve me working with wildlife and, and white tails and of such. And, you know, some cool stuff has happened from, from the time that I started this journey to where I'm at now as a row crop agronomist. But one thing's for certain, it's just allowed me to get – more knowledge, more experience, all wrapped around food plots to the point where I feel really comfortable working with people and making recommendations. And some of that knowledge that I've acquired, in fact, a lot of that knowledge acquired was uh, was helped uh, was was helped retained by the this week's guest. So this week we are speaking with my boss, Eric Rosenbaum. Uh, Eric is, and he'll introduce himself, but he's the owner of our company, Rose Tree Consulting. He's uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. You know, he's done a ton of speaking engagements over the years and works with a ton of clients here in Pennsylvania as uh, as a crop consultant. And you know, he he wears a lot of different hats, but you know, his true passion is uh, is agronomy. And we kind of dive in this week talking about just the basics and how not to overlook the simple things like soil condition and soil testing. We go through what a soil test looks like, how to address it, how to amend the soil properly, and set yourself up for success in the long run. We kind of go through what types of soil amendments are out there to address the deficiencies you might see on your soil test. Uh, how which might be the right direction for you and which might not be you know we kind of let that up to you but based on what's available to you and how to make that work depending on the uh, the size of your food plots this is a a great episode for you to not only learn a ton from because eric is 
very well he's a very well spoken individual does a very good job of explaining things in a way that folks can understand it even if you're not a soil nerd and even if you are somebody that's interested in soil soil health soil fertility you can still learn a ton for him in the way he dissects things and i was really appreciative to have him as uh, as a guest on the show and i really hope that you enjoy this week's episode i hope it's something that helps you plan you know now with this warm weather the ground is thawed out now is the time to get your soil test and do the preparation you need to set yourself up for success this fall so again hope you enjoy this episode let's get into it get the ball rolling here so we are rolling in eric's nice pretty office here and uh (laughs) i have to ask you of all the speaking engagements you've done have you ever done a podcast no, no. I mean, I think I've probably done over 200 speaking engagements over the last 10 years, but they've all been in-person and webinars. Nothing's been a podcast, so this is a new one. <laughs> and of all the, the 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 things that you would get asked to do, it had to be one for an outdoor hunting one, and it wasn't actually <laughs> agronomically speaking, so of course it was that. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> I love to talk about hunting. I don't get to hunt as much as I used to, but I still really enjoy it. Yeah, so we're uh, we're rolling here with uh, with my boss Eric Rosenbaum. So thank you for taking some time and uh, and doing this with me. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. So you, uh, yeah, he said that the the time thing is big, and we talk about that all the time. But when uh, when I asked you about doing this a few weeks ago, it was right at the time where you had like all kinds of speaking engagements lined up. I was like. I don't really think I want to ask him for one more thing on his plate, so I'm glad it worked out when it did. Yeah, no, this is great. Did you uh, – so so right now you're, we're in the heart of, you know, our, our winter season, which involves a lot of meetings and involves a lot of speaking engagement. You said you've done how many speaking engagements over the years, mostly all agronomic stuff. So um, that kind of – we're kind of skirting around. Would you, I'll let you introduce yourself and kind of talk about, you know, how you started your business and, and go from there. Yeah, so my name's Eric Rosenbaum. I'm a, a, I call myself like the senior agronomist of Rose Tree Consulting. I love that title, by the way. I'm the, <laughs> underneath your email, the senior agronomist. Yeah, I, I, I call myself the senior agronomist because I, I really don't like calling myself the owner of Rose Tree Consulting. It's not that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be the owner of Rose Tree Consulting, but you know, for any business to succeed, it has to be because of the team that you put in place. And to call myself the owner of it takes away from just all the contributions that our team gives. So I take the the role senior agronomist, right? I feel like that makes me just the oldest person on the team. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have that many gray hairs. That's good. Uh, but it, it, it hopefully it gives the connotation that, that we're more of a team and, and we do things together. And uh, yeah, but yeah, so we started, Rose Tree started in 2009. And, you know, our, our business is doing a lot of crop scouting and getting out into the field w- with our customers and doing soil testing and giving them recommendations. And, you know, in some ways it, it, it transitions over into to wildlife management because we're all kind of looking for the same thing, right? We want high quality forage and soils that produce because whatever we invest in our soil, whether it's, you know, we're investing in corn seed for 
to, to run the combine through and sell that corn or we're investing in clover seed to grow monster bucks. Like we just, we want it to work. And so a lot of what we do is, is working with our customers to make sure that they can reach their end goal. So like if your goal, and I know your goal is to put out as many food plots as you possibly can and shoot as many giant bucks as you possibly can. Like there's, there's a soil component to that. We want to make sure that whatever we're doing in the soil is going to lead to to enough forage enough biomass production that it's going to draw these animals in and they're going to feel comfortable coming in not just in september but they're going to be there in june july august they're going to be there in november december like it's a place they want to be and that can that can really start with soil testing and how people prepare to prepare that food plot for the year to come absolutely um so and you started rose tree on your own in 2009 right yeah so then it was 2017 you had me on it's been a downhill spiral ever since (laughs) (laughs) Uh, seriously when when did you realize at the point when i was started working with you you're like this guy kind of has a little bit of a problem (laughs) yeah well i think people need to know how how you and i came to work together like that story is is just pretty that is a classic Right. And so that story is I get a call from your wife's grandmother saying that her granddaughter has met this really nice young man and he's working at the game commission and it's a seasonal job and it's going to come to an end. And well, don't don't you have anything that he could do after his game commission job ends? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we do. (laughs) Do I really want to open that can of worms? (laughs) But I think the funniest part was, you know, I call you up to, to just to talk to you and Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, you know, um, what are you doing this fall? And do you want to get together for breakfast? And you're like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm hunting. Um, I could come and meet you for breakfast. So I think, I think you were hunting that morning and you got out of the tree stand, drove and we met for breakfast and you went back to the tree stand right afterwards. You, you bet you. <laughs> it was funny because that, that fall. So when that, when that job came to an end and I was in a lull period, you know, I was talking with you and was looking at a lot of other jobs. Um, that's pretty much all I did was just look for jobs. And I just hunted that whole time just because it was like, I got free time. I can do what I want. And Leanne was like, you need a sense of direction really, really bad. She's like, you have no organization going on right now. If this continues, there's no way we're going to last. But it's been it like her phone call was like, like a little old angel giving me a call and being like, Hey, this is, this is what you need. Right. <laughs> and it was, it was just awesome to have that. And it's just awesome to have you, on our team and just everything that you bring and your, your passion and your drive and well, before even we get too what sappy, you do I'm for hunting, you off now. <laughs> right? Like, let's trans- like you have, a, you have a passion for, for hunting and for sure. I mean, like you're, you're out scouting for customers, but you're taking pictures of turkeys and you're taking pictures of deer. And I think you're working, but you're actually looking for sheds <laughs> and <laughs> I don't find too many. <laughs> but you definitely have a passion for this, and so like I, I, I enjoy just listening to your stories, and I uh, enjoy being here today, being part of this. Well, thank you. Um, it's it's definitely been interesting. It's it's fun to see it play. I think that one of the first, I think it was like the first month of of me working with you. You's like, hey, I have this uh, this client that has deer hunting related questions. Can you go meet with him? I'm like, this is like week two of my job. What's next in store? <laughs> So it's been it's been interesting, but um, you know you were talking in the beginning, and I want to kind of circle back. We were talking about 
what we actually do. And it, I find it really interesting because I have people ask me all the time, what do you do? What do you do? And I try to explain, you know, that we're a third party consulting company and how that works. And, you know, if, if somebody has a very, very beginner level knowledge of, of agronomy, there's still so many questions in trying to interpret it. So like when, when people ask you what you do, whether that's somebody that's, um, you know, you, you're out on a farm and a neighbor that to that farm walks out and says, like, what are you doing? Like, how do you, how do you communicate that? Because it's, I always find myself like <laughs> bouncing all over the place to try to make sense for people. Yeah. I think there's a couple ways to look at it. You know, if you're looking at it from like that super high level, like it's our job to work with our customers to make the complex simple. Um, and we're, we're doing that with our, our testing that we do. And when we're out walking the fields, we're trying to figure out what's going on, what's impacting growth. And we're trying to put together a plan to address that. And it can be often very complicated, but it's really our job to come up with, with a, a simple, clear path for the customer to take in order to achieve their goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never tell that to a stranger because they'd be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so I use I tell people like, oh, uh, we're the people that look for bugs and weeds. That's what we do. We look for bugs and weeds. We, we go out. We we walk the fields. Like I'm out walking the fields for Jeff, whoever, and um, you know, looking for bugs and weeds and anything that's going on in the field. And then we're gonna come up with a, a plan of action to take care of whatever we find. And usually landowners are, are they understand that for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find like my friends too, friends and family, like or. or you know, whatever they, they're like I, I still don't quite understand what you do it's like that's okay just believe me I'm giving value somewhere <laughs> but no where, where I find it interesting when I when I find the overlap between uh, agronomy work and driving yield and, and trying to help our growers um, a lot of it's just understanding the basics and not overlooking the basics when you're moving forward and, and, and I'm, I'm talking along the lines of soil amendments and, and managing things to grow and I find that in when, when you translate over into the world of wildlife management and food plots, um, most of those people don't have an agronomic background. And I think it is really, really easy to get marketed into purchasing something or doing something to a food plot that is just a waste of your money or, or you don't realize. And th- this is what opened my eyes when I started uh, a job in, in agronomy is the price gap. When you start talking about the same overlaying products oh, that we yeah. put in ag fields yeah. and it's, it's uh, prepack, it's repackaged and sold in the food plot world. And the price gap is huge. And, uh, you know, there's probably people that would listen to this that would kill me for that. But I don't care because I want to help people. And I think there's a there's a, a potential there to really educate people. So, you know, first things first in in my point of view, you know, I get asked all the time, can you come look at this food plot, whether that's just a friend of mine or maybe it's even one of our landowners, they'll ask questions about that. So I'll go look at it. And, and a lot of the times it's it's basic things and why it's not working. But first and foremost, um, start off with a soil test. So simple. I mean, literally soil tests are cheap. Soil tests are cheap. Um, you know, almost every state is going to have a land-grant university, and that land-grant university is going to have a testing lab. So Penn State, right? We're in Pennsylvania. Penn State has a soil testing lab. Anybody can walk into an extension office. You can buy a soil test bag for 20 bucks, and uh, you can go out into your food plot, uh, take a sample, 
fill that bag, send it to the lab, and that lab will return results to you within two weeks. Uh, you can put right on the package what you're growing, like I, I'm doing this for a food plot, and they'll return recommendations to you for limestone, for fertilizer, for nitrogen, uh, and that way you have an unbiased um, recommendation of what to go off of. And almost every state is going to have a, a testing lab at the university that is going to be able to help people do that. And I, one thing I try to tell a lot of people when they ask me questions on, on fertility, like we're a, a third-party um, consultant, and we do that same thing but more fine-tuned to the growers and what their goals are and you know, knowing a little bit more history. But I, I think that's what's important because a lot of times what I've seen with people who plant food plots is they get a soil test through a company that they buy product from, and it's easy to then buy product or something that they don't need or misinterpret what they need from that soil test result. I think that's, to me, that's a big one because I, I think it's easy to get the easy to get the rug pulled over in a sense. For sure, for sure. Like any, any company that does soil testing, whether you're a fertilizer company or a chemical company or a consultant like us, when, when you send your samples to the lab, the lab will ask you what kind of recommendations you want to push out. And you get to choose. You get to choose what you're going to identify as an optimal level or what you're going to identify as a deficient level. And then you get to say, okay, if uh, phosphorus comes back deficient, this is how much I want to recommend to somebody. Mm -hmm. So the testing part of it is pretty much going to be standard. No matter what lab you send it to, feel confident that, that the numbers that are on that page are accurate. Nobody is, is interjecting their opinion into those numbers. But then as soon as you start looking at the recommendations that are coming off of that soil test, that's when you have the risk of having somebody's opinion mm -hmm. overlaid on top of your recommendations. So that's why I would, I would say a land-grant university, they have no skin in the game as to how your food plot is doing. They're not trying to sell you anything. They're simply trying to fulfill a service of that land-grant mission by doing soil tests mm -hmm. for people. So if you send a soil test there and you get your recommendations back, feel, feel confident that those recommendations are exactly what you need and no more. If you send your uh, sample to someplace else and it's coming back with specific product recommendations, I think then you want to just uh, take a step back and uh, take an evaluation of how that recommendation is coming to you and what they're looking at. You can always go online if you're not sure that they're recommending the right thing, you can go online to Penn State or any land-grant university. You can figure out what the optimal levels of phosphorus and potassium and pH are supposed to be. And then you can look at your soil test and the recommendations that they're providing and say, okay, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's probably a 10-minute job for somebody to do. Uh, but I, I feel when I look at the recommendations that are coming down through the ag retailers, the people that are selling fertilizer to the 500-acre farmer, um, they're, they're fairly well close aligned on the major nutrients. Absolutely. I feel like they're recommending limestone for pH about like we are. They're recommending phosphorus and potassium about like we are. You get into some of the other micronutrient things, and I think there's probably a, a diverging path of how we handle recommendations. But for the major things that people are going to be looking at within a soil test, um, I find the, the majority of, the, of the, the ag industry does a pretty good job. Now, I don't know a whole lot about what the, the wildlife food plot industry is doing and how they're overlaying their recommendations. But like I said, you can easily go onto a, a Penn State website 
and, and see what those optimal levels are supposed to be. Well, and I think what you would expect from a wildlife side of things or a, a food plot side of things, there's a lot of parallels in interpretation. And, and what I mean by that is it's so easy to uh, want to find a new buzzword, the new thing that's going to drive yield or make something better. And uh, the, the thing that comes to my mind is, you know, we get in, a, in our winter meetings that we do. So, you know, the, the way it works, uh, uh, the year works for us, you know, we go out in uh, after crops are harvested, we pull soil tests and <clears throat> we, we take those samples. We meet this time of year, um, go through those samples, what they mean, try to plug the lowest holes in the bucket on those samples and, and then make, you know, a field plan for that year. Then we're walking those fields and kind of laying that out. When, when you're, when you're talking about going through the soil tests, um, First of all, our soil test, when we get those results back, um, we do a, a basic soil test, which is going to include your, your pH, your buffer pH, your phosphorus, potassium, your CECs of the soil, your, your calcium, magnesium, uh, base saturations, and organic matter. And, uh, you know, there's, there's options to fill other stuff out, but you know, we get, I get asked all the time and I'm sure you have in, in plenty of cases too, why, why aren't we testing for more in the soil? And I, I, one of the things I tell a lot of people is we, we need to make sure we, we cover the basics in those macros really, really, for, because I don't care what we do in the, the secondary and micro world. If, if we're missing the mark on something as simple as having our pH correct, having potassium correct, having phosphorus correct. I don't really care what we're doing beyond that because we're missing the mark, in my opinion. Absolutely. Get the basics right. Um, your return on investment from the basics is so much greater than your return on investment from all the small things. Um, if, if you're looking at return on investment from soil additives, right, pH and putting limestone on, it's going to give you a big return on investment. Um, making sure that your potassium and your phosphorus levels are right. That's going to give you a really big return on investment. Then you start to get into some of your secondary nutrients like um, you know, sulfur or boron or zinc or, or manganese. And the return on investment just goes down so fast mm -hmm. that before you even start to think about looking at some of those <laughs> smaller micronutrient things, you, you've really got to get the, the pH, the phosphorus, and the potassium. You've got to get that right. Uh, you know, in Pennsylvania, what they're going to consider an optimal uh, range of, of pH is going to be anywhere from 6 to 6.5. So if somebody is doing a, um, you know, a, a multi-species food plot mix that's going to have some cereals, it's going to have some forbs, it's going to have some legumes, you know, each of those species is going to have a different ideal pH. But if you can keep that pH somewhere between 6 and 6.5, those plants are going to flourish and do everything that they need to. From a phosphorus perspective, you know, phosphorus is really going to be a 30 to 50 part per million optimal range. There's, there's zero need for you to have phosphorus levels much above 50 when it comes to a food plot. Um, potassium is probably the, the potassium and, and pH are probably the two most common deficiencies that we see. And uh, from a potassium perspective, we want those potassium levels to be about 100 to 200 parts per million. If they're below 100 parts per million, you will see signs of, of potassium deficiency. So I usually try to keep it simple for people, and I want them to remember three numbers, right? If you want optimal pH, it's 6.5. If you want optimal phosphorus, it's 50. And if you want optimal potassium, it's 150. Mm -hmm. And until you can get all three of those numbers pretty close within your soil test, don't worry a whole lot about some of those other secondary nutrients. Uh, once you do get, get pH, phosphorus, and potassium nailed down, okay, 
then maybe let's start taking a look at sulfur. Let's start taking a look at some of these other things that are maybe going to influence forage quality more so than they're going to influence forage quantity. Mm-hmm. Right? We got to get the quantity thing down first, and then we can start looking at at some of the the other things. Absolutely. And when we talk about um, product and adjusting and, and missing the mark, one one simple thing that I see too before we get into talking about product and addressing it with amendments. Um, I've had two two circumstances happen in a lot of cases. Number one, I'll either get, uh, why is my food plot look like crap? And I'll look <laughs> at the soil test and they either don't have it or, you know, they're they're not managing those things that you just said. The second thing is I'll, I'll get a soil test and I'll look at it and go, wow, everything looks the way it's supposed to. So if there's experiencing something else going on, um, why, why, what exactly is going on? And it's so amazing to me how many times I go out and again, we miss the basics. Is it in a location that there's absolutely, there's really, really poor sunlight getting to that. You know, so many times I go to places and food plots are put in the absolute worst possible places you could think. Old log landings, um, logging trails, dozed out paths that are are narrow and don't have adequate sunshine wet Uh, soils that have poor drainage wet soils log landings that have extreme compaction that's a huge problem why we would have that because you don't have any anywhere for uh, roots to go right so stuff like that so i I can't not miss that because I've, i've been places where the soil test comes back and you go this should grow a perfect food plot and then you look at simple characteristics and you say well, your food plot will do a whole lot better if you take a chainsaw and you cut down a bunch of trees on this side of your food plot because you're going to allow more sunlight, and that's an extreme part. And that's that's something extremely simple but overlooked. I mean, when you're going through, and don't, don't look at that now. When you're looking at it in February, you think, oh, i got plenty of sunlight coming through. <laughs> no, the problem is going to be during the growing season. Yeah. Um, that's uh, it sounds simple but so overlooked. I mean, that's typically when I go to places and look at food plots, that's – almost the number one thing that I have a problem addressing. It's like you need to create space, not just for the plants where you're looking at it, but you need to look outside that perimeter. That's a big one. Yeah, that's true. I think compaction, people can probably identify compaction pretty easily when they're taking a soil test. Like, I I don't know about you, but like um, most of the, the food plots that I've sampled for people over the years have been like, it's either it's either wet and has a really high water table or it's just rocky as all get out. Mm-hmm. And in those ones that are rocky as all get out, I can't use my regular soil probe. Like when we go out and do soil testing for our customers, we have this, this aluminum soil probe um, that you, you push in six to eight inches and you do that 15 times throughout the field. And it, it's super handy. There's no rocks or very minimal rocks in an ag field. Then you go into the food plot <laughs> and you can't get your soil probe in an inch and a half because it's all rock. Exactly. And so then I just use a shovel, right? I always have like a four foot shovel in my, in my truck that I can use for soil tests. And when I'm getting a soil test in a food plot, oftentimes what I do is I'll, I'll dig a hole eight inches deep with my shovel. And then once I get that, that hole dug eight inches deep and I have a clean face along the backside of the hole, I'm going to move my shovel back about an inch and then I'm going to drive it down as, as hard as I can and get a, a clean cut so that I, I base, basically have an inch of soil mm-hmm. the length of, of my, my shovel face. Right. And I'm going to take that, put it in a bucket, and I'm going to go around the food plot maybe three other times and, and get you know four, four holes dug, four faces, put it in a bucket, mix it all together, and, and then I've got my, my sample. Mm. 
but um, they can identify compaction when they're doing that because if you're going to have compaction in the soil you're going to have a difficult time digging down right if my shovel face is 12 inches I'm going to struggle to get down three, four inches if I have compaction. And that's probably what you're talking about with those landings. Um, oh, absolutely. How deep do you need to go before you hit that compaction level? And sometimes pretty darn deep when you're talking about running skitters and, you know, log trucks on, on places like that. Sometimes it's extreme and you've you got to keep in mind or, or try to keep realistic. I mean, I think people think that it's, it's going to be overnight work on some of these places when you're talking about deciduous force. And I've pulled soil tests that have pHs under a five. And that's, I mean, that's going to take a significant amount of time just to get the, the, the pH to a level of optimum. That's not just a one-year fix. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, getting back to the, the pH side of things, the P, the K, and managing those macros and the, the low hole in the bucket, so to speak, I get asked all the time, what do you think about this product or this product or this product? Um, you, you know, we already addressed that in a soil test. If you get a recommendation from a grant, you know, let's say it comes back with a two ton per acre application recommendation of lime, or maybe it's going to come back with a 200 pound per acre application of potash. First of all, I, I tell people all the time, because most times food plots are small, how many square feet are in a food are in one acre? And a lot of time people tell me, oh, I, have a, I have an acre food plot. And you look at it like... This might be a quarter to a half in that range. I do that all the time. So first of all, uh, 43,570 square feet is one acre. So that is the number to keep in mind when people want to figure out how much product you need to put on the field. That's a big one. But second of all, we're talking about a, a pretty substantial amount. You know, one ton, 2,000 pounds of, of lime on one acre. That's that's a lot of material to move. So people, you know, most food plotters are talking about doing something with, you know, hand equipment, ATV maybe with a drag spreader. So then you, you get products like... Uh, <clears throat> Like something you'd maybe you throw on your lawn. Uh, maybe you're talking about a liquid lime in a sense. And people go, well, this says it does the exact same thing. And um, it's the interpretation. And, and I'd kind of like you to talk about that. I've talked about this a little bit. But, I mean, it's, it's kind of the difference in my mind between a plant amendment for that year and a soil amendment. Yeah. Yeah. So well, let's talk about pH, for instance, right? So pH is, is uh, a logarithmic scale. So a pH of six is like 10 times lower than a pH of seven. Mm -hmm. And a pH of five is 100 times lower than a pH of seven. So logarithmic scale. So pH is is very much sensitive to, um, to, to, to that swing. So when you get pHs in your soil that are down much below 5.8, and pH, is, is, all it is, is just, it's a measurement of hydrogen, and it's a measurement of aluminum in the soil. Yep. At least in, in the mid-Atlantic region, that's what pH is measuring. Hydrogen and aluminum, right? And not just aluminum, but free-floating aluminum. So when you get pHs that are down below 5.8, you have a lot of hydrogen present in the soil, and you have a lot of aluminum that's not attached to something, just kind of floating around the soil. And it, it just eats roots away. Um, you know, roots can't survive with that much hydrogen in the soil. They can't survive with that much free-floating aluminum. So when you put lime on, right, that reaction is you're putting lime, which is calcium carbonate, and the calcium dissociates from the carbonate, and the carbonate, which is CO3, right, uh, one of those oxygens is going to pop off of that, and it's going to latch onto two hydrogens and create water. Mm-hmm. And so now you're left with water and carbon dioxide and some extra calcium. 
And so the pH rectification goes through that carbonate molecule. So you can get calcium carbonate, you can get magnesium carbonate. Those are probably going to be the two most common ones. Uh, if, if I were talking to somebody about, you know, what kind of product to use to, to rectify pH, I would probably lean towards doing like a pelletized lime. Right. Uh, pelletized lime comes in 50-pound bags. You can get it in calcium carbonate. You can get it in magnesium carbonate. Easy to handle. You can put it in a toast spreader. You can just throw it around with your hand. Um, pretty pretty easy to manage, right? That's what I use for my yard. It's what I use for my orchard. Um Pelletized lime works great. A little bit on the expensive side, but mm -hmm. like I said, worth worth the investment. Um, the liquid limes, I've used the liquid lime on my yard one time, and um, I had to order it. It took forever mm -hmm. for it to come in. I had to drive like an hour to a truck stop to pick it up from somebody. And I brought it back. I was super excited. I got liquid lime, um, and it clogged up my sprayer like nothing else. It clogged okay. up my sprayer within three minutes. Um, my pump got clogged up. My nozzle got clogged up. I was trying to use just the, the spray wand. I have a 10-foot boom on my sprayer, but the, the, I knew the nozzles on my boom were going to be too too fine. There was no way I was going to get liquid lime through the nozzles on my boom. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to use the wand sprayer on the tank. And um, like I said, within three minutes, I had a clogged pump. I had my wand got clogged up. And then I ended up having to buy a whole new pump. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had to replace my wand. I had to replace my filters. It was awful. Awful. So I would, uh, I would, I would caution people. Like, if you have low pH, which which would be pretty common for somebody with a food plot on a mountainside to have mm -hmm. a low pH just given the nature of that, um, I would lean towards doing a pelletized lime. I think it's going to be an easier product for people to handle uh, because I, I just don't want people to go through that experience of having to buy a whole new pump and clean out all their stuff. It was just, it was nasty. Um, so, you know, once they get that limestone put on, right, uh, don't expect immediate changes. Um, you're, you're, you're looking at a mineral that you're applying to the soil in order to achieve a chemical reaction. And so you're going to apply lime in April. And if that limestone reacts by August, you're going to be pretty happy about Absolutely. that. Like, it just takes forever. Mm -hmm. what, what I usually tell my customers is, hey, you've got a pH of 5.5. And in order to take that pH from a 5.5 to like a 6.5, it's going to take like three tons of lime per acre. Um, but in the first six months, the amount of limestone that reacts is very small, mm -hmm. right? The, most of your reaction is going to occur in that six to 18 month period following application. Um, so just keep that in mind. Like when people have food plots, if their pH is low and they're trying to figure out how much lime to put on, um, put on what you can this year. And then knowing that it's going to take six to 12 months in order for you to start seeing that reaction and then maybe soil test it again and see what the pH is, and then you can kind of apply lime over a period of years in order to get that pH to where you want to. You don't have to do it all all at once. Exactly. And um, a couple of years ago, I was at an event. It was a, it was a food plot event, and one of, uh, one of Lebanon County's finest uh, uh, extension agronomists was there, Del Void. I'll, I'll name him uh, for guy. this. Yeah, he's Good been guy. doing it forever. Yeah, he has. And uh, he was one of the speakers there. And he was talking about a couple things. And, you know, me being me, I had to stir the pot in a sense because I, I, I love doing that. And I, I asked him because I knew he would give a great answer. And he said, I said to him, I said, Del, 
Um, can you just, when you were talking about the basics in the soil test for this food plot parameter project that you were doing that you just presented to us, I said, can you explain to everybody listening here the difference between the liquid lime and uh, running a bulk product because you know liquid lime it, it's I'm not I don't want to talk negatively that it's a bad thing it's not you know it, it has its place um, there's there's effic there's products out there that have a, a lot better efficacy to prevent the problems that you experienced um, <laughs> that <was> awful <laughs> yeah that that's bad um, but there, there's products out there to prevent that from happening but he, he put it in such a simple way of thinking he said think about it you're getting a recommendation for two tons of material he said and that lime might have a, a CCE of 80, 90, 90 plus percent, which is, is, uh, right. So CCE calcium carbonate equivalent. Yes. Yeah. So that is the, the, the percentage of the material, like, like comparing it to, to raw limestone. Like if, if pure limestone was a hundred percent, it'd be a hundred CCE and calcium carbonate equivalent. A lot of materials are what? 80 to 90%. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so still, you're talking about a, a, a lot of product to make to make major changes within the, the the profile of the soil, and he said, think about that, and then think about putting liquid lime on in the sense of the five gallon jug that you get for that food plot. He goes, yeah, you're making changes to the soil, but it's minuscule. It's yeah. Minuscule. It's so short term thinking. Right. And, you know, a lot of people will make that argument in the food plot world that, well, you've got this section way back on your property. It's hard to get to. This is an easy solution. And maybe it is in certain cases. Maybe that's going to be easier to do on an annual basis to maintain. But you get to a point where if you're if you're doing this for 10 years straight, um, to me, managing it the first two to three years, you're set for a long time in food plot cases most of the time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. pH is not going to go, it's not going to, it's not going to go up and down fast. If, if I took a soil test today and the soil pH was a 6.5 and I came back next February and took a soil test in the same spot, my soil test might be a 6.4, right? It, it goes down very slowly through time that it's not like, you know, you, you spent a couple of years getting your pH up to a 6.5, and now you're going to wait another three years before you soil test. And in that three-year period, your soil test isn't going to go from a 6.5 to a 5.5. Exactly. It's maybe going to go from a 6.5 to a 6.2, maybe a 6.3, right? It's very slow decline as that acidification process occurs. Um, so, yeah, once you, once you get that initial investment done in pH, you should be set for a pretty long time. Absolutely, because a lot of the time, the the things that reduce our pH over time, like when you're when you're when I'm thinking like from agronomically in our corn bean wheat rotations, the things we do on an annual basis, kind of um, make that process go quicker. That's the easiest way to put it. Versus a food plot where. A lot of the time when you get your basic stuff that we're talking about managed, you get stuff into optimum levels, you're not doing uh, a ton of tillage. Uh, I mean, I, I talk constantly about how to do no-till food plots with minimal equipment, stuff like that, and the benefits to that and how that equates to hopefully a better quality food plot and better hunting and yada, yada, yada. Like, the 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 process of throwing seed and managing weeds, we don't have a very, very fast process of acidification. It, no, we don't. We don't. Most of your acidification is coming from your parent material, right? It's coming exactly. from the rocks at the bottom of your of your soil. And so people are going to put lime on, on the top of their soil profile. And if their pH is super low, 
like you need to do the tillage and incorporate that limestone through your whole soil profile and I'm, I'm a huge proponent of no-till love no-till mm-hmm. production but if you surface apply your lime you know it's only going to leach down through the soil profile at about an inch a year mm-hmm. so if your roots right you're going to go out and you're going to plant a multi-species mix and it's going to be some clover and it's going to be some sorghum and buckwheat and whatever else you're thinking and those roots are going down you know 24 36 inches and you know how how real really what is your options for affecting that soil ph through the whole root prof- profile it's fairly limited um, so if you have a low ph to start you're probably going to need to do the tillage and incorporate that limestone as deep into the soil profile as you possibly can because if you surface apply it it's only going to leach down at an inch a year right so now you, you've got a ph of 5.3 <laughs> at 12 inches and you surface apply your lime in a no-till situation and it's literally going to take 10 years for the limestone to get all the way down to that 12 inch mark to to have an effect on ph right so if people have super low phs I hate to say it, but do the tillage, mm-hmm. get that limestone down as deep as you can, affect as much of the soil profile as you possibly can. And then once you get the pH out of that danger zone, then yeah, yeah, let's talk about doing a no-till system and, and just kind of letting that, that limestone leach down through at its natural level. Yeah. So uh, we've been talking a lot about soil tests and that's the stuff I wanted to talk about. So if, if people are listening to this you're still hanging on with this, then that means you're really interested into this nerdy stuff because it's important. doesn't love pH? Exactly, exactly. It was funny because you, you spoke at an event um, two weeks ago or a week ago, and uh, one of uh, – I'll, I'll shout out to PA Plotters, um, who's probably listening to this right now. He uh, he sent this, this post about um, this presentation he went to, and I was looking at his post, and I'm like – well, that was the the place that my boss was speaking at. and I scroll through his pictures. I, yeah, there's my boss in his presentation. It was it was kind of funny. So it was it was really cool to see that that Mike was going and he was really interested from an agronomic perspective, soil health, and I, I think that's a big stuff. Soil health in the world of of whitetails and wildlife management, I feel like has become a little bit of a buzzword in some sense. It's not that it is a buzzword, but I feel like a lot of people are harping on it so much. And, and missing the mark of why we do it in the first place. And it's it, the reason that I do it is for A, um, the, the system that I like to use makes my life simpler. When, you know, when I'm looking at the amount of food plot acres that I plant on an annual basis, if I can avoid having to take a, a tractor or a four-wheeler with a disc and be disking constantly, that makes my life a whole lot simpler. But the aspect of the soil health, um, the, the way nutrients work through your soil and the way the, the plant interactions are occurring in the soil, the, the less we disturb that from a food plot sense, why, why would we, especially from a, a, uh, a wildlife perspective? Um, to me, it just makes sense, but it, it's really hard to communicate this, the, how a simple system like that really benefits you over time. Because I think people get so hung up on... I need to have the absolute most attractive plants and I got to exchange the most nutrients through the plants to better the, the fawn production and milk production and deer and in, inches and antlers on white tail. And that's great if that's your goal, but, um, you know, this, this is probably a, a statement for another podcast, but I don't really care. Uh, the quality of milk production and the antler growth that you experience in all your deer if you are doing your hunting strategy wrong and you're chasing them to get shot on your neighbor's property anyway. And that's a whole other topic of discussion. But. <laughs> so you guys have, oh, you've done a lot of food plots at your place over the years. You know, it's it's mountain ground, it's rugged territory. 
Um, how much time did you have to invest in getting your soil right so that you could look at some of these soil health issues? Um, well, to be honest with you, the, the amount of work that would have been done to get the pH just, just in check, like we were talking about, that some of the first fields were, were really, really small. And I remember we used to take um, the old dump truck, fill it with ag lime, and shovel it. And it, and it was like your forearms would be like would, Popeye. Oh yeah, like Popeye <laughs> when you were done. And uh, you know, not that we need to bore everybody this, but but ag lime is one of the things that breaks down the slows when compared to pelletizer or something like that. I remember we shoveled it on, and it took a very very long time for that to break down. Years. We did intelligent stuff like that, but the uh, the soil health component of it, um, you know, we didn't really start to pay attention to that until I probably started paying attention to it from an agronomic perspective. So within the past five to seven years as I was going through my education and stuff like that and translating some of that. So um, how that needle has moved over time, it's been very, very small. But what I, the, the benefit that I like is, number one, the, the ground that I work with is thin topsoil in the first place. Why would I want to till it in the first place? Right. Because it doesn't take much for it to run off if we leave that bare. I mean, yeah. I remember dozing out locations and getting five-inch rains, and those five-inch rains or whatever ridiculous summer rains we got. I mean, you just see piles of topsoil at the bottom. Huh? There goes what you had. <laughs> um, so holding soil is what's most important to me. But the, the we, we talked about you know a lot of these just basic macronutrients. I don't really care how much you do in that sense. If you don't get rain, it doesn't grow. And if you can't hold the rain, that's important. Um, So uh, it sounds so simple, but I'm saying these simple things because these are the conversations I have constantly. When I get um, questions about this liquid fertilizer to put on for the plants, and it's got molybdenum and zinc and boron and all this, those are all really, really important things. And I'm not discrediting those because from an agronomic perspective, we see a lot of micronutrient deficiencies. Plants need them, 18 essential nutrients. Exactly. But if you're going to grow, you're going to grow a sorghum plot for, for deer. Right, it's going to take what 100 pounds of nitrogen. It's going to remove 60 pounds of phosphorus. It's going to take 100 pounds of potassium, and it's going to take a quarter pound of zinc. Right, and and all those micronutrients: you know, zinc, boron, molybdenum, mangan- manganese. Right, you name your micronutrient. Like the difference in in need is so great. Right, it's literally like 100. P- pounds of, of potassium that that crop needs versus a quarter pound of, of copper. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's night and day. You, know, yeah. you just don't need much of those micronutrients. But when you buy it in a jug, like one of the most profitable things that a, a chemical or a fertilizer company can do is sell you that jug, right? And it's got <laughs> 0.01% copper and 0.02% boron. And it is a very profitable product for them to sell. may not be benefiting you all that much, but it's great for them. Well, and one thing that I've learned, uh, one statement I've learned um, in in our travels and our job is if you put anything into a a depleted system, you will see a response. So uh, the example I'll give is there's a a new food plot I can think of. And the pH, I believe, when it started was like a 4.9. The phosphorus was less than 10 parts per million. We already said 30 to 50 optimum. 
the potassium was probably 40 parts per million optimums, you know, 130 plus. Right. Um, so, so extremely depleted system. You know, it called for a lot of lime, called for fertilizer. We did some of those things, but the, the breakdown and, and where that soil is in that virgin state is very, very poor. Um, that same year, um, one of my buddies bought, um, I'm not going to name the product, but it was a very, very well-known liquid fertilizer product to get your food plot up and running and sprayed it in a couple of locations. And, and we put a couple check strips out and put fences up. And you could see a major, major difference in those cases. And it was like, wow, look at this. We need to run this on more places. And my point and why I was such a negative Nancy about that is, yeah, it did it for a short-term solution. And maybe that's something that I should consider if I really want to try to maximize as much as possible. Maybe something on a really, really poor startup situation, that's a benefit if you're trying to get forage in the fall. But from a from a soil management and a long-term management, and I'm always thinking with, with what we do, I'm always thinking long-term, um, you're not going to see that exact same major response when you get the basics right. And that's the thing I try to stress all the time. Right, yeah. Even if you look at, at products, you know, you're going to go to your local Agway or your local you know, store, and you're going to get a bag of 10-20-20, right, or a bag of 5-15-40 or whatever fertilizer analysis you're going to buy, right? It's a 50-pound bag. It's 10-20-20, right? So that means it's 10% nitrogen, 20% phosphorus, 20% potassium. So out of that 50 pounds, you have 5 pounds of nitrogen, 10 pounds of phosphorus, 10 pounds of potassium in that 50-pound jug or in that 50-pound bag, right? So now you compare that to a, a two and a half gallon jug of liquid fertilizer, and a two and a half gallon jug of liquid fertilizer, you know, it probably weighs 10, 11 pounds a gallon. Mm -hmm. So now two and a half gallons, you've got, let's just say 30 pounds of, of fertilizer or 30 pounds of material in that jug. And it's 10% nitrogen or it's 8% nitrogen, right? Well, now you got three pounds of, you know, nitrogen in that whole jug, mm -hmm. right? So, so people should really think about that and, and compare and contrast the products. When you have a soil test that's really low, go to the dry products. You just get so much higher concentration of nutrients in those dry products. And, you know, put those 50-pound bags over your shoulder and hoof them into the food plot and sprinkle them around because that's going to give you your biggest response and your biggest bang for your buck. Exactly. And I think people get uh, sticker shock from that because soil amendments and stuff like that, when you're talking about it any size, whether you're talking a half-acre food plot or you're talking, you know, 10, 20 acres of food plots, um, it's it's an investment and you know most of the time what i've learned is people who lo love their deer they're not afraid to spend money but um at the same time we're in a corner of the world where uh pennsylvania dutchmen like to cut corners where they can and uh see something cheaper and it's going to quote unquote supply the same thing mm -hmm. it, it's long-term versus short-term thinking is is what i try to communicate so hard and it's it's uh you know, it's all a matter of how you want to interpret it, what's going to be the best situation for you. But like I said, really reaping the, the, the rewards of fertility, soil health long-term, and what you're trying to do with a food plot, which my, my goal all the time is just to create um, an opening of attraction that's going to steer deer movement in a direction that's going to be favorable to me. You know, I don't want to put a food plot in a location that's not going to be favorable favorable to me. And any added benefit from a nutrition standpoint is great. But when, when you're talking about um, making 1% of a property food plots, you're really doing a negligible amount to the overall nutrition. Not that it's bad, but I think a lot of hunters and people who look at it from a their, their, their back 40 or less than that, 
the impact you're having on the herd is insignificant when you're talking from a nutrient standpoint. You have a bigger impact when you talk the hunting strategy thing, which, like I said, it's a, it's another topic we've talked many, many times. And when you can put all the places together that you can keep deer from seeing you, hearing you, smelling you, you don't expose them to pressure outside of your borders. And that's what's important to me. So I kind of went on a, a hunting tangent there. But, I mean, like I said, when, we, when we're talking about uh, – fertilizer and stuff it 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 gets boring but this is why we why we why we talk about it (laughs) no it is it is like and the other thing i would point out is depending on when the last time you took a soil test is if you haven't taken a soil test in the last couple years go do it this spring but if your soil tests are pretty poor it's going to influence the species that are going to survive in that food plot Mm -hmm. right so if you're if you're not sure what your soil tests are you're going to be better served by getting a multi-species mix and putting it out there the ones that are tolerant to a low ph the ones that can really you know uh, are are scrappy and can survive low potassium situations they're going to thrive and the species that can't will die off Um, once you get your your levels up to where they are uh, more species should be surviving Mm -hmm. so like things that are are not going to do well in low phs a lot of your clovers aren't going to do well in low phs a lot of the more fancier species that you want to try to to promote aren't going to do well in low ph they're not going to do well in low potassium you're going to be stuck growing buckwheat (laughs) in in some of those situations Uh, so definitely get those levels up as fast as you possibly can you know go buy the bags of pelletized lime go buy the bags of 10 20 20 get it done because you can get it done pretty quickly Absolutely. Um, one one thing's kind of the last thing when we're thinking about because I'm kind of uh, running out of things to talk about from the end of the soil test. I and mean, we kind of talked about just the, the concept of bulk product and making sure you're, you're treating it as an amendment versus, you know, uh, the one thing that you don't have on a soil test unless you specifically ask for it is nitrogen levels. You know, when we talk about our macronutrients, it's N, P, and K, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And <clears throat> nitrogen isn't on a soil test unless you ask for it because it's a very mobile nutrient. Um, so a lot of the time what I handle for people is just putting straight urea on after it's planted or at planting, depending on the, pro- on the, on the crop. Um, you know, we, we get into situations of putting um, for, for, you know, a small uh, overwintering forage, maybe that's like a, a, a small grain silage with, with wheat and triticale and stuff like that. And you're trying to really drive yield, you know, we'll get into those hundred to 130 pounds of total nitrogen that we're putting on it. And most of the time, what, I, what I've experienced in, uh, in a system where we've, we've kind of maintained our pH, our P and our K, and we're doing everything we can from soil health perspective that we're going to talk about in later episodes here is, um, you know, putting somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds per acre of urea on is going to give you about 30 to 45 pounds of actual nitrogen. And for the all intents and purposes of what you want to see, that's plenty, plenty in most cases. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, with my, I have like a 16 tree orchard down here on my mm-hmm. property which I have to have fences around because the deer come in and just destroy. Like, I, I think if you ever wanted to put a great food plot up, just go plant a bunch of apple trees, and they will come in and just destroy those apple trees within 30 <laughs> days. Um, but I go to the local Agway out here in Ephrata, and they have bags of stabilized urea, right? Mm-hmm. So urea is um, really susceptible to loss, right? If you surface apply your urea, a lot of that urea volatilizes within a couple of days if you don't incorporate it. And at, at the, this location, I can get stabilized urea so it doesn't volatilize. So I'll go out in the spring and I'll get a 50-pound bag of stabilized urea. 
a 50-pound bag of 10-20-20 and like three or four bags of pelletized lime. And that's my spring program for my, my orchard down here. Go and just spread the pelletized lime by hand. I don't do anything fancy. Uh, same way with the 10-20-20, I spread that by hand. And then when it comes to, to the urea, you know, stabilized product, I can go and I can just sprinkle that around the, 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 the tree line uh, of each individual tree and use that as my nitrogen source. But it works out great. And you definitely see a response to it. It's not um, it, it's not a huge investment that you have. I mean, it no, really, not you know, at all. sometimes it depends on the cost of fertilizer. But I would say that I get all that stuff for you know, $100, $120 probably. Mm-hmm. Um, which, hey, you know, 16 fruit trees, if they ever get big enough to produce fruit, I'm going to be, you know, raking in the money. Yeah, I'll be coming down for, for apples and <laughs> apples and stuff all the time. <laughs> I say that extremely sarcastically because after about four or five years of growing fruit trees, I've picked two apples and four blueberries. <laughs> and I've replaced I've replaced like three or four apple trees because deer just keep eating them if I don't fence them in. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big problem. Yeah. Major problem. Major problem. Well, hey, we've been yakking for soil uh, for about soil tests and trying to manage stuff for quite a long time, and I think at this point it's probably worth considering wrapping up. Eric, am, am I thinking about anything? Or am I missing anything when you're talking about the basics when it's coming to just growing a sufficient food plot based on a soil test? Am I missing anything that that people really need to think about? Um, no, no the, the thing that, that I would just want to drive home to people is when you do that soil test, right? And we want to do it like every two or three years, right? You, mm-hmm. You're going to go out and you get a soil test. We got to get that soil test down about six to eight inches. So you're going to use your shovel and you, you're going to dig a hole, create that face, you know, and, and grab that, that, that one inch uh, of soil uh, with, with a new shovel face, put that in a bucket, do it three or four times, mix it all up. And then you're going to have like a, a baseball size amount of dirt that you're going to put in a bag and send that to the lab. Um, just do it, mm-hmm. right? It, it'll take you 15 or 20 minutes to do that soil test. It's not a big, uh, it's not a big job, but, it, but it's, it's so important for creating that foundation of how that food plot is going to work for you. Absolutely. Uh, so go do it, you know, send your kids out to do it, uh, make it a, make it a fun time. Tell them there's a treasure hidden at the bottom of the, uh, of the hole, but, but just whatever it takes, go and get that soil test done. Um, send it out to the lab, you know, um, me personally, if I was advising landowners on their food plots, I would send them over to Penn State Extension, mm-hmm. grab the bags, um, everything, all the results are going to come right back to you. They can email it to you, they can mail it to you, whatever you desire. Um, but it's a, it's a fairly easy process. Then once you get those results back, um, act quickly. You know, don't beat around the bush and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, hit that pH with lime as as hard as you need to understanding that it could take a year to three years in order to get that ph up to the optimal level where people need it to and get those phosphorus and potassium levels up where they need it to go and buy a bag of fertilizer put it on um you know the the response from fertilizer should be pretty immediate if Mm -hmm. you apply fertilizer in april that material will be available to your food plot in April. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take any time for it to release. It's immediately available. So you should notice a response to fertilizer immediately. The, the limestone is going to take a little bit longer, but uh, go out and get it done. Well, speaking of fertilizer uh, response, uh, you brought up a good point. So when you get stuff into Optimum, 
your phosphorus, your potassium, calcium levels. Phosphorus and calcium are the two that are always talked about because those are two that are very important uh, nutrients when it comes to um, <clears throat> developing bone and developing um, young fawns. And <clears throat> I think people have this uh, misunderstanding of how much you actually need and, and this concept that if if optimum is good a little bit more is better and that's right. not always the case can you right. can you explain that yeah so it, it it is not a free pathway into the plant if i am calcium and i am phosphorus it is not just an open door into the plant to get into that plant right a plant has a highly regulated system for uptaking nutrients and you can almost think about it as like the the regulation process is like your house, right? The only way that people can get into your house is through the door. Mm -hmm. And you get to control how far that door opens and if it opens at all. And so nutrient uptake is exactly the same way, right? The plant knows how much phosphorus it needs. It knows how much calcium it needs to take in in order to have that correct ratio of phosphorus and calcium. Mm -hmm. And so there's a different door for phosphorus to come in and there's a different door for calcium to come in and the plant is actively regulating how far and how quickly those doors open in order to let phosphorus and calcium and really any other nutrient in so you know when, when you think about what an optimal level is and if an optimal level is 30 to 50 parts per million and somebody is saying well optimal phosphorus 30 to 50 parts per million my if i increase my phosphorus to 200 parts per million won't i have just a, a so much healthier forage and get better bone mass no <laughs> no you won't no. you just <laughs> have a lot of phosphorus <laughs> you just have a lot of phosphorus because a plant only needs so much and it has a highly active regulation process to regulate how much of that phosphorus gets into the plant so really all you need to do is just meet those basic thresholds of being in an optimal range. Once you get into the optimal range, the plant's going to take care of the rest. It's going to use its regulatory processes, and it's going to be able to allow that phosphorus to come in, allow that calcium to come in, and do what you want it to from forage quality. You know, in some cases, once you get to that point where your levels are optimal, it may be cover crop species selection mm -hmm. that matter more than what that actual fertility is. Absolutely. Well, hey, before we go, I, I want you. Uh, there's there's one story I gotta hear. Oh God! So, uh, um, one of the <laughs> one of the first times I met you, my father-in-law was telling me stories about when you were young and you shot this giant buck <laughs> and you told the story of driving up to it and where your dad and I always butcher it. So I gotta hear the biggest the biggest buck in all of all. Right. Of so when I was 12 years old, you know, so I, I went and I got my hunting license at 12 years old, and um, you know. Buck season is coming up. You know, it starts with the Monday after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And this was like 1990, whatever. And wouldn't you know it, like that October, I was in wood shop and I, I cut my finger off <laughs> in wood shop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't get to hunt when I was 12 years old. So anyway, now I'm 13. And um, my dad says, he goes, oh, we're going to build you a tree stand. So he builds me a tree stand in our pasture. And I said, well, where are you going to be, Dad? And he's like, well, I'm going to be over on the other side of the woods. So the first day a buck comes along and, you know, it's, it's a, a misty, like it's, it's raining a little bit. You know, like the fog is in the air and he takes me out to the stand and he, you know, I climb up the tree. I sit in my stand and he, uh, we, we call this tree stand the Taj Mahal because it was like as big as a conference table, right? <laughs> <laughs> like you, me, and, and like, like our kids could have sat in this tree stand. It was so big. Um, so I'm in, I'm in the Taj Mahal and I'm sitting and, and my dad is maybe 
200 yards up the hill in, in his tree stand, probably just thankful that he had a break from me. Right. M- mentoring like you're supposed to do. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. From <laughs> distance, from afar. <laughs> mentoring from afar. So I had to borrow a gun from a neighbor when I was 13 years old. I didn't have a deer rifle. So I borrowed a gun from, from my neighbor and it was a 308. And the guy that I borrowed it from was just, he was, he was like a, a hunting nut like he was he was into hunting mm. and i would go over to his house and he, he taught me how to reload and when, when i'm you know 13 years old and he's like all right you know your dad asked if if you could borrow a gun for me come on down and come pick my well i go down into his house and his whole basement is like a vault and there's just guns like the whole wall and I'm, I'm like i'm amazed i didn't realize one person could have that many guns <laughs> america <laughs> right yeah america <laughs> So he takes me over to the wall and he pulls out this 308 and he's like, "Wow, this I call this one my sniper rifle and it's got, you know, the 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 stock is all adjusted that you can adjust it for your cheek and mm. it's got this giant scope on it." And for somebody who's 13 year old, like I really thought I was using a sniper rifle. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes me out and he teaches me how to shoot this this 308. So anyway, that's what I'm walking out into the woods with that morning and my dad, you know, parks me in the Taj Mahal and he walks up to sit in his his stand. And he, he, the last thing he says to me, he's like, look, just shoot the first thing that comes along. Just, he goes, just, let's just, the first thing that comes along, you just shoot it. He goes, I don't care what it is. Cause we grew up on a farm. We had farm tags, mm-hmm. um, you know, so doe buck really didn't matter to him. We were going to use the Cheerios box as our tag and, and report it to the game commission and, and you know, everything was going to be okay. So daylight comes and like the sun comes up and it's just barely bright enough that you can you can see. And here comes this doe you know, walking down from, from my dad. Like it had to go past him, came walking down towards me and it's 20 yards away. And I'm, I'm like, Oh my gosh, here it is. It, it it's Brown. Like I'm going to shoot it. So I put my gun up and I'm like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and see what happens. Like it's too early in the morning to, 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 to shoot this thing. So uh, a couple minutes pass, and the doe walks down farther in the pasture, and I kind of lose interest, and I'm looking around. And the next thing I know, I look back towards where the doe is, and here she comes. She's walking back towards me, and there's this, this monster buck, like, just right behind her. <laughs> and he's just trailing, you know, six feet along behind her, and she's leading him right back up the trail. And by this time, you know, the, the, the it's fully light in the morning, and this buck comes within 20 yards of me, 20 yards away. I'm 13 years old. Um, I'm literally wearing street clothes. I've done nothing to, to, to mask my scent. I'm, I'm probably jumping up and down in the stand at this point. Like uh, I'm, I'm not being quiet. I'm not being still, I'm not doing anything, but he's following that though. And he could care less what I'm doing. So he gets within 20 yards and I shoot. And then he, um, he runs out into a cornfield because the, the corner of the pasture was at where I was sitting. It was right on the edge of a cornfield. So he jumps the pasture fence and he runs out in a cornfield 40 yards. And I'm, I'm like frantically trying to like reload and, and get, another, get another shot. And I throw the gun up and I shoot and the thing falls over. Well, there was only ever one hole in that deer. So when it fell over, my bullet passed right over top of it. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad comes down and he's like, did you shoot? I'm like, well, yeah, I shot. <laughs> did, did you get it? And I look at him. I'm like, yeah. Don't you see the rack sticking up above the corn? Because like the, the corn stalks are, are, you know, two feet tall or whatever. Yeah. And the rack is sticking up above the corn stalks. It was that big. <laughs> so it, it turned out it was, it was like a 25 or 27 inch spread seven point 
It was the biggest buck I've, I've ever shot in my life. <laughs> and I shot it by like 8 o'clock in the morning or whatever. That's just the way you want it. <laughs> just the way you want it. Yeah, you're, you're, my, my father-in-law told me that story that like you guys were going up and be like, don't you see it, Dad? No, where is it? Yeah, it's, it's sticking up above the corn. Sticking stalls. up above the corn. And he's like, what? <laughs> what the heck did you just shoot for your first deer? Yeah. I love I love that story. Yeah. The first time I heard that. <laughs> so the neighbor came down whose gun I use and he was he was ecstatic and he's like, We gotta take this to the butcher, we gotta get it mounted, we're home, we gotta go. <laughs> but yeah, I have I have not shot another deer that big since. I don't even think I've seen many deer that big since. No, it's a special thing for for me when you can experience something. I mean, I've been I've been pretty blessed to be part of some really really cool buck harvests and some mature buck over the years, but it's it's usually few and far between in most cases, and unless you're doing some some crazy stuff. But you used to shoot a lot of competition archery too. I did, yeah. You loved shooting archery. I did, I got into archery when I was in college, and it was just a way to uh, not get in trouble. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. it was funny, like the first time when we when we were you know. When I first started working, you know, we were making conversation, getting to know each other and stuff, and started talking about archery because you knew I liked archery hunting. And I, I started talking like really, really basic, like, "Oh, this is what I'm doing with my bow, and this is why I'm doing." And you're like, "Oh yeah, I used to shoot that." I'm like, "Oh, you shot bow," and you start going into like the depths of your shooting. I'm like, "Oh, you shot in college, you know, that's pretty mm-hmm. cool." And 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 then you're you're like, "Yeah, yeah, I was I was I was a you know st- a statewide champion or whatever." I'm like. Yeah. What? He's like, yeah, Larry Wise used to coach. I'm like, hold on a second. Who the hell am I working for now? I'm like, what is going on? You start going in and tell me the stories about getting coached by Larry Wise, which for, for those of you, most people listening to this probably know who Larry Wise is, but he's like the, the, the guy who wrote the book on back tension releases and, yes. and, and back tension form and archery, which oh, yeah. is you know huge in the world of competition archery. Yep. So it, it was... It was, everything happens by luck and, and by dumb circumstance, right? So I, I go to Penn State, and um, we're, we're, we're just a bunch of dudes shooting at, at targets and, mm-hmm. and having, you know, having a good time. And the, the, this one woman walks in, and she, she's like, are you guys the archery club? And we're like, yeah, we are. She goes, oh, I was expecting more. <laughs> and she introduces herself, and she, her name was Carrie, and she was uh, like national champion uh, of archery from Texas. Right? Mm-hmm. And she was at Penn State doing her her master's degree, and she goes, "Have you guys ever thought about doing tournaments?" And we're like, "No, but if we get to travel, we are in." Yeah. So she's like, "Great, we're gonna do we're gonna do tournaments. We're gonna start shooting tournaments." So we ended up shooting all these indoor tournaments throughout Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, we got on like the indoor circuit of going around all the different clubs and we end up doing the state championship. And so we go down to the state championship and by that time, right, this is all in, in one season. By that time, we actually decided we should go and get Penn State shirts and all wear our Penn State shirts together. So we go to the championship, and that's the one I ended up winning. Mm-hmm. And um, and then somebody said to us, "Hey, why don't you guys go down to the the shoot in Atlantic City?" And we're like, "What? We have no idea about the shoot in Atlantic City, but Atlantic City has a, a big archery shoot mm-hmm. at least, they, and and you get to shoot, you know, forty, fifty, sixty meters indoors." And so we go down to Atlantic City, and we walk in with our Penn State shirts, and there's this guy in, in shooting crossbows, and he's like you guys are from Penn State. And we're like, yeah, shirts. Penn State, Penn State. We're from Penn State. He goes, yeah, I'm a professor at Penn State. I'll be your advisor. And the guy's name was Stan. So Stan was, uh, he was a professor of, of plant physiology. Mm. And so he became our advisor. 
And so after that Atlantic City trip, he, he goes, when do you guys meet? And we were like, we meet Tuesdays and Thursdays down in the white building. He's like, great, I'm coming down Tuesdays. So he showed up Tuesday night. And again, like he walks in and he goes, this is what you guys do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is what we do. He's, how did you make it to Atlantic City doing what you're doing? I don't know. It was just dumb luck. He goes, I'm going to call Larry Wise. And we're like, great. We have no idea who Larry Wise is. <laughs> <laughs> so he called Larry Wise on like a, that, that night. And Larry Wise showed up at our practice on Thursday. Wow. And Larry lived you know, 40 minutes outside of State College. And he goes, oh, he goes, you guys are, you know, you're, you're going to shoot competitively. I can help you with this. He goes, I'm going to show up once or twice a month. We're going to give you lessons, things to work on. And over that, you know, over that, between that year and the next year, Larry really did. Like he, between him and Stan, they would come to our practices. They would give us tips. They would give us pointers. I learned how to shoot the back tension release through, um, you know, through him. And it's just a, an amazing experience, mm. but all through dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hysterical because it was funny because like we're talking about shooting and like I haven't done a lot of target archery just because of time and stuff and you know I was always focused on hunting but I, I took a lot of target archery concepts and I used to shoot indoor um, you know shooting three spot at 20 yards just because that to me that is such a fantastic way to better yourself as an archer mm -hmm. and you know when being able to shoot you know a quarter consistently at you know 60 shots to shoot a 600 and i i think like the the best i ever did on a, on a half round at 300 was like a 298 and i was like oh man that's that's really good and when yeah. we start talking you're like oh yeah I've, I've cleared cards and stuff i'm like who the heck is this guy <laughs> So when I was in, when I was learning from Larry and and it really in in my most competitive state, uh, I would use the back tension release in the tree stand. Yeah, you know, just just shoot deer with the back <laughs> tension release. You know, it'd be rifle season. I would just take my bow out and and shoot, and you know, no problems. I never mm -hmm. had a problem shooting a deer with a back tension release. Now I I couldn't even imagine doing it. Well, yeah, when you be, when you're so far you know, removed from it. Like I actually shoot a, a hinge release now to hunt too, just because what I, what I've learned with myself is when I get under pressure and get excited, the only thing that I have a remote possibility of like having a little bit of control is, is with that release. And it's not like it's, it's not like it's that release does so much more for me. It's just the fact that, um, <clears throat> it, it's a mental thing that allows me to execute my shot better because I, I've tried to, you know, I've shot for, you know, all off season and shoot my hinge release and then go into shooting an index caliper release. And I'll, it's like a deer comes in front of me and I forget what I'm doing and I just get so dang excited and, you know, forget my shot process, punch the trigger and, and, you know, wound something or miss or something stupid like that. So I've kind of resulted the past few years, I, I've been shooting my, my hinge release for hunting and I've, I've really liked it for the most part. I've actually considered maybe trying to, to go back again and, and shoot my index release just because I, I'm always tinkering with stuff. Not like I used to cause, cause time is of the essence. You know exactly what that's like because we, <laughs> we talk about that all the time. And you know, you know, you're somebody that I've looked up to in a lot of sense because you, you talk about priorities and you said to me one time, you were like, you know, I love all that stuff. But at the same time, like, you know, I've, I've got, you know, my career, I've got my family, my kids in the phase of life that they're in, like, I, I, that'll come back to me. That's another thing. And I, I try to keep that perspective of me because, you know, you know, so well that, you know, it's, it's so often the first thing on my mind when I wake up in the morning, and the last thing before I go to bed. And that's just the, the fact of the matter is there's so much more. And I said this year, like my, my main thing is really just trying to focus on priorities and and uh, so that's one thing I've really enjoyed outside of agronomy, you know, just you know, BSing with you over time. But uh, 
yeah so we've been rolling for for plenty long so eric thanks uh thanks again for uh for doing this hopefully this is helpful i mean this is the planning phase when it comes to to food plots and stuff like that now so yeah plan absolutely. now and, and work now yeah work I, it was it was enjoyable i'm glad we were able to do it and i would just let people know like if they have questions about food plots like you're the man you know you know how to advise them so reach out and let's get some successful food plots absolutely well, hey thanks again